Here's a gal who comes out of a drug rehab program with a bag of stuff, right? Her spiritual and material needs. And through a system of really bad circumstances, um, this young lady was was virtually homeless. And so she had moved into a, a house of a man who was um, somewhat disabled. But as time went on, it became apparent that was not a very proper and certainly not a very safe place to be. And so between the time that we had talked on the phone and the time that we had arrived, they had decided it was crisis time. They went over, picked her up, uh, got her out of the house and, and brought her there to their house. And so we had the company of this young lady and her, her baby while we were there. And we, uh, we had the uh, joy of participating in uh, moving all of her stuff. Now, here's a gal who comes out of a drug rehab program with a bag of stuff, right? I got to tell you, folks, you wouldn't believe how much stuff. She, she worked at Goodwill. <laughs> and we had loads and loads of stuff to stack and pile away. But the thing that fascinated me was the way in which Bart and Judy had 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 somehow zeroed in on this young lady. Economically, she was broke. She needed work. She needed transportation. And when they moved her from the one location to the other, it meant she could not work where she had been working. And so uh, Bart and Judy had worked with other people in the church. They had rented an apartment for her. They designated a, a piece of the rent for her that she could afford. But other people in the church just picked up the tab on the rest. Uh, they had a network of uh, doctors who worked on her teeth, and she had now uh, artificial teeth that made her look presentable and, and able to, to work. But it just struck me, and, and by the way, this young lady, on the Sunday we went to the church where Bart attends, she got up and she shared her testimony about what Christ had done in her life. And I thought to myself... That's a beautiful picture of shepherding, is it not? The way in which the church ought to be zeroing in on somebody who's vulnerable, who has needs. And the thought just occurred to me this morning as I was thinking through that whole scenario again. Shepherding is a full service ministry. Now think about that. When you read Psalm 23... Or when you read the other shepherding text, it doesn't talk about just zeroing in on one particular aspect, does it? You've got guidance. You've got protection. You've got uh, pasture. You've got all of these different things, even comfort as you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. It's a full service project. And what I would say is this. As I read Ephesians chapter 4, and especially those first 16 verses, it seems to me that shepherding is really a bigger project than any one person can handle. It just so happened that when we were at Bart and Judy's, we stayed Saturday night with them and we left Sunday afternoon. But they were leaving for the Northwest Monday morning. And so they had to somehow work with other members in the church to, to move the stuff and do all the things that, that had to be done. It couldn't be done alone. When I read Ephesians chapter 4, what I see is that those who are gifted and leaders in the church, their task is to equip the church so that the church itself shepherds. And so while we have our individual shepherding responsibilities, it's really a networking kind of thing, in my opinion. And there have to be other people in the body who come along if it's going to be full service then there are various needs, various gifts that, that need to be applied to really give a full-service, balanced ministry. And I think that's part of the reason that we exist as a church. Okay, that's, I've got, by the way, I'd encourage you to think of examples of shepherding in your own life because I want to I give you a chance to share uh, the ways in which you've experienced uh, shepherding as we go along. I was thinking about this and I was saying to myself, you know, all the young guys, they're going to be sitting back in their chairs, sort of leaning down, saying, boy, I sure love this. He's got really on these old goats and, and, and here I am. I'm sort of home free. You know, this kind of flies right over my head. It really doesn't. 
Uh, and what I want to say to you is shepherding begins young. Shepherding begins young. I have not had the opportunity in the last while to watch the Olympics, and not any of them. So I can't tell you anything specific from this year's Olympics, but I will say this. You and I know that the people who are champions didn't start this last week. They started this, many of them, when they were little kids, ice skating, whatever. They started it literally at the beginning. And that's the way it is with shepherding, in my opinion. I think as we shepherd our children, uh, we need to train them. They need to see how shepherding occurs, and it needs to begin early in their lives. So I want to give you some examples from the scripture about how early shepherding starts. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. <laughs> this sounds like Moses, doesn't it? Early Exodus. You know, not me. I can't do that. Then I said, verse 6, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. The Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth because everywhere I send you, you shall go and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Being young was not an excuse. In fact, God chose him perhaps because he was young uh, in his formative years. Look at Daniel chapter 1, and in particular, verse 8. Daniel was one of that crop of bright, young uh, boys that was hauled off to Babylon. And you remember the king set apart these, these bright kids to train them to be administrators and rulers within his kingdom. And it says in verse 8, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he may not defile himself. The interesting thing about Daniel is he did not protest or resist going to Babylonian school. Now, I don't think everything they got there was so great, do you? What he did resist was that which he knew would be spiritually defiling, and that would be related to, to what he ate. As, as, as a Jew, I think we can understand that. The other thing that I think we have to bear in mind as we just pass by Daniel is this. He had three trusted friends. And I think those fellows reinforced each other. And you have to say, here is a man that God appointed. Think of the administrations this guy went through. Think of, think of the presidents we've had. You know, if, if, if he had been a counselor to Bill Clinton and, you know, and you go on down the line and, and now he's, he's there with Donald Trump still serving because of his faithfulness, faithfulness to God. And, and his wisdom, which, which even earthly kings had to acknowledge. Another one is uh, an interesting one. I don't know if you've thought about this. Luke chapter 2, and it's our Lord Jesus. I guess I've always sort of had it in my mind, wrongly so, that when the Lord Jesus came to the earth, he sort of had a core dump from God and, and, uh, He's fully God. He's fully man. But you have to deal with the last verse of chapter 2, which says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, favor with God and men. He grew. He grew spiritually. So, I'm wrong when I think about baby Jesus laying in the manger and he's, he's thinking from the, you know, the theological grid of all of the knowledge, in a sense, that there is. And he's just looking around watching. Can't talk yet, but he's watching. He knows exactly what's going on. When you get to uh, chapter 2, and he is there with the, the religious leaders. Remember where the, the, it was sort of a family caravan and, and Jesus was assumed to be somewhere with the relatives, and then they realize he's not there. And it says they, they looked high and low for him. And when they found him, 
Look at verse 46. And it came about after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, when I read that, somehow that shakes my categories because I always thought about Jesus as saying, now, boys, there are three things you ought to know. He's, he doesn't take the platform. He's saying, to, can you imagine Jesus now at this point? I don't think that he fully grasped in this in this process somehow of of God developing him as God man in the process of realizing all that was there. Can you imagine Jesus saying to him, yeah, I've been reading Isaiah 53. What does that mean? What's that about? And, and so I think that in the process of asking those astute questions, they probably said to him because of the next verse. They were astounded at his understanding and answers. So obviously they were responding with questions and whatever. But my point is, here is Jesus at the age of 12, pondering the scriptures and, and deciphering as it was where, where in this scheme of things, where it's all going to work out. I do not understand the mystery of that. I, I confess, I do not understand the mystery, but I have to read the text the way it says. And that is, Jesus, in his youth, was a serious student of Scripture and discerning what God's plan was for him. Okay, let's look at, uh, at another. Joseph. I love this particular example of shepherding. And I have to tell you, this is one of those uh, texts when I when I did seminars in prisons. I always did the Joseph story. Start at Genesis 37 and end uh, in the 40s. And, and you, you started on uh, Friday evening and you had to be done by Sunday afternoon because that's all the time you had. And, and the prison system was saying to you, now you understand that in the state of Texas, the average education is fourth grade. So be sure not to go too long and jump from one text to another and have them do games and whatever to keep them activated. I got to tell you, this story hooked them. I've had guys sit there for an hour and not only were they listening intently, but sometimes there was 30 percent of the population couldn't speak English. And guys are translating into the ears of guys who are listening. They can't miss this thing. So here's Joseph at uh, at age 17. He uh, he wasn't too wise at, in those early days, was he? Favorite of his father, wore the cloak, which basically was a status symbol, and that irritated his brothers. <laughs> I was thinking about this in terms of Martin Luther King. Uh, Joseph had his own version of, I have a dream. <laughs> and it did not go so well, right? So he tells his brother, you know, the dream about his sheaf. And, and the other sheaves are, 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 are bowing down to it. Well, you know what it means, do you not? I mean, it's pretty obvious. The brothers figured it out. What you're saying is, you're going to lead us. You're going to be an authority over us. And then his second dream, Joseph didn't learn too quickly at that point. And so he has another dream, and he, he tells his brothers, the sun, moon, and the eleven stars are, are, are bowing down to him. Pretty awesome. Dream, pretty bad response. So the brothers are saying to themselves, in effect, just you wait. Just you wait. So you remember Joseph would rat on his brothers to his dad. And so his dad sends him off to uh, to Dothan, where the brothers are tending the cattle, and, and then to Shechem. Does Shechem ring a bell in your mind? Shechem is that city, remember, that Jacob went to. And he settled that, and uh, Dinah was raped. And then the brothers of Dinah said to the to the leaders of Shechem, uh, "We'll we'll intermarry with you, all right? But you guys, uh, you're going to have to be circumcised." <laughs> I can imagine the mayor of Shechem going back to the men, having his men's meeting, and saying, "I got good news, and I got bad news. The good news is we get those Jewish girls. The bad news is." But see, nobody had ever been circumcised. They didn't know where that was going to go, right? 
I once was in the hospital, and there was a guy in the bed next to the fellow I was visiting, and he was in bad shape. Guess what he was in for? <laughs> yes. So, here they are, you know, a couple days afterwards, and they slaughter the whole city. So, you can imagine that uh, that it, it's just possible that Jacob had a little apprehension about his boys hanging around Shechem, uh, given the, the history of that. So... Anyway, you know the story. Joseph gets uh, gets dumped into the pit, gets sold off into slavery at the age of 17. And then he uh he starts out in the in the the uh fields taking care of the sheep uh of uh Mrs. Potter of Mr. Potterfer and of course gets prom, uh, promoted up to the upper echelons of uh, Mr. Potterfer's palace, I think. And he's uh, probably got one of the upper stories there. And Mrs. Potiphar thinks he's a pretty fine specimen. And so she's after him. Uh, as you know, the story goes on. But is there, it's interesting, is it not? Joseph saying no, no, no to Mrs. Potiphar in 37. And uh, Jude is off saying yes, yes, yes to the Canaanite girlies, marrying them, having his sons marry them uh, in chapter 38. Long and the short of it is, when you go through the the system of things that happens, and then Joseph's in the prison, and he tells the butler and the baker their dreams, and eventually the word gets to uh, Pharaoh, who has had two dreams. And so Joseph interprets the dream, and I think had the gift of administration. He not only tells them what the dream means, he tells them how to fix the problem. And so you set aside the grain and you do all these things. And then you get to uh, to Genesis 42. Jacob, a hero of the faith, says to his sons after they've run out of grain, what are you guys sitting there looking at each other for? Get down there to Egypt and get us some grain. Well, they don't quite understand that I think Egypt is not exactly the place where they're uh, thinking they'd like to spend the, the holidays. It's got bad memories. They don't know what happened to Joseph, but they really just don't want to go there. Finally, they go. And the text tells us that when his brothers came before Joseph, they didn't recognize who he was. Obviously, he looked Egyptian. He talked Egyptian, uh, all of which he had learned in the settings that God had placed him. This is the point when you're teaching in prison where the guys are on the edge of their seats and they're smiling because they see Joseph coming across harshly with his brothers and they say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, payback time. They were in when this when this innocent boy gets sold down the river, so to speak, by his brothers. They're saying, yeah, it's just like me. So and so got me in here, whatever. And now they're saying payback time and they don't get it at all. What this text says is Joseph recognized his brothers and he remembered the dreams. What were the dreams saying? The dreams were saying, you are going to lead your brothers. This is where, in some wonderful way, God creates in Joseph a shepherd leader. And he understands his responsibility is to be a shepherd leader of his brothers to bring them to repentance and to bring them back to unity. Remember, Judah has already gone off, and he's living amongst the Canaanites. This is a family that's falling apart. They don't want to sit around and, and watch their father bemoan the fact that his favorite son is dead. They're breaking up. They're going apart. So all of this thing that takes place, where Joseph speaks harshly to them, and he says, you guys are spies, and whatever, and then I'm going to test you. If you're really not spies then you bring that brother of yours that you said you have, you bring him down here and prove that. All of that was to, to bring them down, and you know how Joseph then literally recreated the circumstances that his brothers were in to sell him into slavery. So he recreates by putting the cup, the silver cup, in his brother's sack, not to mention the money, <laughs> the refund, instant rebate these guys got. But he created a situation in which all they had to do was walk away from Benjamin, go back home, and they're home free. And it's Reuben who, at the end of this whole scenario, says, If I don't come back, Dad, you could kill my two sons. Nah, what a man. What a man. 
And here's Judah, who now comes before Joseph without knowing who he is. And he says, our father loves this boy more than all of us put together. If we don't go back with him, it'll break his heart. Take me. Take me. It is amazing to watch the faces of those guys all of a sudden realize it isn't about Joseph. It's about Judah. Judah's the one through whom the Messiah is going to come. God's been working all of this. And Joseph was the tool. Joseph was the shepherd that created all of those events in a way that led his brothers to not just be sorry for what they had done, but to actually repent and to do the opposite. Repentance is, is not being sorry. It's doing it differently when you have the chance to. All right, I'm going to tell you a little side story. When I was teaching in the prison, medium security prison in my hometown, there was uh, one rule in that. There was a, a accredited high school program, and uh, the teachers who were my teachers uh, when I was in high school, were now my fellow teachers. I was teaching with them in this high school, and one rule was you can't sleep in class. So one of my fellow teachers is is walking around the classroom, and one guy is is dozing off, and and so he goes and he shakes the guy a little bit, walks around, guy's back asleep, he shakes him again, goes back to sleep, he shakes him a little harder, and the guy pops up out of his seat, he says to him. You ever do that again, you're going to get it. Well, we had a fellow out in the hall named Mr. Look, ex-Navy sergeant. Mr. Look was a big boy, and he was tough. So Mr. Look took this guy to solitary for 30 days. <laughs> 30 days later, kid comes back to class, and he comes up to the teacher, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry about this. Uh, I think you misunderstood me. What I meant to say was if you ever do that again, you might get it. That was his level of repentance. See, that is not Joseph's brothers. So my point in all this is, Joseph was a shepherd of his brothers. When God gave him those dreams, what God was saying is, I'm going to make you a leader, I'm going to make you a shepherd leader. And that's the job that God gave to him. Well, then there's David. Think about David, the shepherd, and how God prepared him early on. We see him standing before Goliath at age 17, but it doesn't start there, does it? And I, I find it very interesting that his brother, uh, his older brother, when, when uh, uh, David shows up on the scene at the insistence of his father, at the instruction of his father, his older brother is basically saying, A, you abandon your little those few sheep, that little band of sheep, you abandon them and you just want to come here and be a spectator to see the war. Well, the reality is he hadn't abandoned those sheep. He had appointed somebody to care for them in his absence. But the inference that his brother is making is your job isn't that important. You're just a shepherd, a few sheep. What, what difference does that make? You have nothing to bring to the table when it comes to what we're doing here. We're doing big boy stuff. Go back home. The reality is when David stood before Saul, he draws upon his shepherding experience, doesn't he? And he says, when I was a shepherd and a lion or a bear came along. Now, i got to tell you, folks, that's the time to leave town, in my opinion. But David says, I didn't abandon the little flock. I didn't abandon them. I grabbed the, the lion by his you know, beard and I slopped his head off. And so when he looks at Goliath and he sees Goliath roaring as it were, David basically says, been there, done that. Seen the bears growl. Seen the lions roar. And in order to protect the sheep, I stood my ground and God gave me the grace and the power and the ability to defend his flock. And he could translate that. He could transpose that experience and say, if the God that I serve there in the shepherd field is the same God as I stand here in the battlefield, then guy can rant all he wants. And worse than that, this guy is ranting against my God. And if the God who gave me power at lions and bears 
allowed me to destroy them, then God will give me the power to destroy this guy. It was just that simple. My point is, God had been preparing him to shepherd by shepherding. Interesting, Moses had the same thing, right? Shepherd the people and uh, you get your training. So, I'll tell you my personal story. When I was 16 years old, uh, we I was coming back from school and we had a big curve around the bay. And just before that curve was a good long straight stretch and a, a truck that was loaded with hand-split cedar shakes had not navigated the curve and the whole load of shakes had come off on the road and they had piled up against the uh, the curb there in a way that uh, was tempting. So we called the state patrol and they basically said, we'll take your car and leave the emergency flashers going and whatever and sure you can haul those things off. So in the course of crossing the road, my mom, my dad, and, and I, I was standing by my mom, and I heard, here's a 16-year-old kid. I do know what a, what a car sounds like winding up full tilt. Brand new Chevrolet coming down that straight stretch. And I knew we're looking at 100 miles or so. And I thought I got my mom across the rail, and everything but her leg got there. And this guy hits that rail uh, demolishes the whole load of shakes, but takes my mom's leg off in the process. That was not an easy time for me. It wasn't a good time. It wasn't really, really even a spiritual time for me. I, I would have done damage to someone had they been caught. But I watched. I watched my dad get up in the middle of the night. I watched my mom feel pain in a leg that no longer existed, which is part of the package. I watched all of that, and and then as time went on, <laughs> my dad had to borrow my car to take my mom for therapy. Mine was better than his. And uh, by the way, he slipped the clutch, drove me nuts. But that's another story. So <laughs> can't stand that. Um, but as as time went on, the reality is I had to start thinking ahead. I had to start thinking about where I led my mom where it would be to be safe, how she would get up and down stairs, all, all the kinds of things that now somebody with one leg uh, and one wooden leg, you got to think about. And I thought about the way in which God used that. And I find myself, even today, obviously my mom's still alive, so I've still got the same set of equations, only add 95 years to the to the equation. But I find myself, wherever I am, seeing people differently. And, and whether it's Mrs. Lockie in her motorized wheelchair or whoever it is, I unconsciously think ahead about how she's going to get out of the car, how she's going to cross this curb, whatever it is. I think God did that for all of our family, but I think he did it for me. Because it really shaped the way in which I live. The way I think. <laughs> you know, I've got a good friend, Craig Nelson, who's blind. And, and he and I have traveled a fair bit together. And, and my problem with Craig is sometimes I watch out for him too much. And when I do, Craig is sure to turn to me and say, you're not my mother. <laughs> Which I interpret meaning back off. <laughs> Sometimes, in fact, I'll tell you this story about Craig. He he grew up in Oregon, and there's a blind school in Oregon. So one of my friends said to him, well, did you go to that school? No. Why not? Craig says, it's a blind school. <laughs> That's the way he deals with difficulties. All of that's to say, God is taking each of us, young man. God is taking you, and he's bringing you through circumstances which is shaping you in the shepherd category. God is at work in your life now, not just in the future, now, to make shepherds of you. Okay, I want to tell you one key element in that process of preparing shepherds, and that, I think, is the Word of God. You see it in those uh, individuals that I mentioned earlier, but I want you to look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119. 
And I want to look in particular at verses 97 through 104. It says, Oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation all the day. Thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed thy precepts. That's just sort of a leg up, isn't it? It's a leg up on age. You can be an old coot and not see life clearly. But somebody who studied the Word of God and has practiced it is further ahead in their grasp of life and in their maturity than people who have not. And so what I would say is to, to young men and older, be in the Scriptures. There's the place where God will make you wiser than your peers, even wiser than some of your teachers. Now, let's go to the book of Proverbs. And I'm thinking here about its authorship and its purpose. If there ever were a textbook on preparing to be a shepherd ruler, in the Old Testament, it's the book of Proverbs. Just that simple. Dr. Walke used to say that the book of Proverbs was written to little princes and princesses. It's written, at least to a large degree, by Solomon. And it's written to prepare a youngster to grow up and rule. That's what the book is about. Now, I want you to look at the introduction. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, these words of the wise and their riddles. I guess I should read verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Here's the puzzle. When you go to the public library and you want to read a book, I'm guessing, unless you're taking your little kids there, you don't go to the children's section. Right? they got the little kids' books, you know, and you know, A is for this and B is for that and whatever. It's not exactly mature adult reading. I know as a parent and a grandparent, I've read all that stuff more times than I wish to admit. But that's not mature adult reading. Why is it that in God's library, he's got a book that he says covers the whole spectrum of age? From those, in effect, who are just little ones to those that are old and wise. It makes them wiser. It brings them along toward wisdom. How do you do that? I'm going to give you my 25 cent opinion. I've always puzzled because I'm I'm a sort of a linear thinker. And so when I go through a book like Romans, I I want to follow the logic from chapter one to chapter two to chapter three and and just think my way through in that, that way. Sort of a straight line, logical thinker. I know there are people who think in circles, but I don't want to go down that trail right now. But straight line thinking, and I, so I say to myself, what, Proverbs, what, what, how do I go from one verse to the next and see sequence? So I asked, one time I asked Dr. Walkey, this is after he had aged a bit, and he was at a theological conference, and he, and he had his book bag in his hands, and he's got big pop bottle glasses at the point. He says, yeah, I've been thinking about that. And he reaches in and he pulls out this book and he says, this is written by a liberal, but I think he's on to something here. I never found out what that was. Uh, what's the sequence? What's the, what's the key to the way in which the verses are arranged? You know what I've concluded? There is none. That's the point. It's like God has taken wisdom and he's put it in little note cards about the size of a, of a playing card, and he shuffles them. Now, i got to tell you, I'm the world's worst shuffler. My dad, after his stroke, he would play solitaire. 
And when my mom was out working in the garden with, with my wife, I was the guy, the goat. <laughs> they got to, to help pop along, and it was really bad uh, for me. And, and so Pop would say, shuffle them again. And I'd shuffle them. He'd say, shuffle them again. That's how bad I was. You don't have to say that with Proverbs. They're well shuffled. Sometimes you'll see the same Proverbs in different places. How is that true? Here's my, here's my take. Those little bite-sized cards are just the right size for a child. Like a gold ring in a swine's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Right? Or the one that talks about the sluggard that, that's sort of on hinges and he just goes like this on his bed. This is the way he is. They're not only bite-sized pieces, but they're sort of cartoon-like in the sense that, that you get this mental picture that you really just can't put out of your mind. And, and a child can latch onto that. They can think about that. They can look at life and say, whoa, there's one of those right there. The way it applies to the wise is that you have to choose which cards you're going to assimilate to deal with an issue. I'm really indebted to a guy named Tremper Longman who wrote a, a book called How to Read Proverbs. He's got s- several other books. But, but basically what he says is you have to be careful when you read Proverbs that you don't just jump at the first thing it says. So take he takes poverty, the poor. What's the, the quick and dirty easiest explanation available for why people are poor? You got it. You got it. And, and what does Proverbs say? Yes. Yes. That's card one. That's a card. But Proverbs also says the fields of the poor are rich, but injustice sweeps it away. There are some people who are poor not because they're lazy. They live in a corrupt society that takes it away. And so wisdom has to say, what are, the, what are the cards when it comes to this issue? When it comes to this person, what are the cards that relate to this? And how do I triangulate those in such a way as to assess this particular situation? And, and what I would say to you is little kids go to the book of Proverbs and they love those cards one at a time. And older people they, they begin to see more and more cards and they say, I think I'm going to have to think about this. And by the way, it also says in Proverbs that you know a guy by what he gets his jollies from. And so a fool gets his jollies from folly. That's what he loves. But a wise man really delights in the seeking of wisdom. And so the way in which Proverbs is set up it's a challenge to the wise men to say, give that some thought. You really need to think about this. Okay, Proverbs, many, many things. Let me just go over a couple more if I can. Proverbs has much to say about uh, choices. So you've got Proverbs chapter 1, two choices, right? Two paths. One path is you might call the path of parental guidance. And the other is the path of peer pressure. <laughs> your, your buddies come along. It is amazing to me. When I read that when I was younger, and it says, come along with us. We'll, we'll, we'll make life hard for people. We'll steal their stuff, and we'll share it all together. I thought to myself, that's crazy. It's exactly what gangs do today. Exactly what they do. They encourage other people to join them in evil. The fellowship of fools. And that's what Proverbs says. Here's a path. Here's a path. And here's a path that's parental guidance where your parents are saying to him, you in effect, you've got, you're on two trajectories and you can't see the end. It's sort of around the bend. But here's what that path looks like. And here's what this path looks like. So one path is going to have Madam Folly and the other is going to have Dame Wisdom. And they each have their approach. Which path are you on? And what I would say to you, young man, at this early stage in your life is this. Every one of you, every one of us is on a trajectory. 
Now, I'm an old goat, so I'm further down the path and probably more locked into my path than you are. But the question that Proverbs is saying is, given the choices that you're making right now, given the friends that you're associating with right now, who you want to be like, where's your trajectory headed? And Proverbs says there's only two places, life and death. It's that simple. Proverbs is saying, think about the trajectory of your life and where that life is going. Two women, and I call that seduction or instruction. Hello, big boy. Seduction. And here's wisdom saying, admit your folly. Admit your naivety. Admit your lack of wisdom. Be instructed. By the way, I remember years ago, Bill Gothard unrightly said, have you ever noticed in Proverbs, it's always the woman that seduces the man? So I told my friend Fred Smith about that. You know what his answer was? Sounds just like a bachelor to me. (laughs) And what he failed, what Bill Gothard failed to see is, yes, a woman is the seductress. A woman is wisdom. And so you're choosing between these two women. Which one will you, which way will you go? All right. Enough about that. Character. If there's anything in the book of Proverbs that could be helpful to you, it is the description of character. The simple, that's just the one who's inexperienced. It doesn't know enough about life. One of my grandkids runs out in the street. Why? Because they don't know enough about life to realize there are cars that go there and you can get squished. Simple. And then there's the fool. They're sort of hardcore simple. (laughs) They like it, and they're going to stay that way. The scoffer, who is not just foolish, but obstructionist. It's the one in your company. It's the one in your school that's always causing trouble, always getting people off in the wrong direction. Proverbs says, get rid of them. Don't let them hang around. They'll just cause trouble for others. The sluggard. I want to tell you about this because here's a triangulation one. Everybody thinks the sluggard is just lazy. Some are. But the way Proverbs describes the sluggard in other instances is the sluggard works hard at avoiding what he doesn't want to do. It's not that the sluggard does nothing. The sluggard does everything humanly possible. To justify where he's going. One of his excuses, by the way, his logical excuses is, there's a lion in the road. That is, that is so true of life. If there were a lion roaming around outside that door, and I started to head out the door, you'd say, don't go, don't go, there's a lion in the road. But the lion in the road is my compelling reason why I can't do what I should do. Or why I should do what I shouldn't. It's a compelling reason. Proverbs gives you those things. Oh, and here's the one about the sluggard. I came to realize, I was, I was actually preparing to preach this, and I said to myself, okay, okay, who's going to be out there in the audience just lapping this up, feeling so good? My answer was, the workaholic. The workaholic is going to love what I'm saying about the sluggard because he's working his tail off. And I concluded the workaholic is a sluggard because he spends extra hours at work. He spends extra hours on the job because he doesn't want to be spending his time at home. He doesn't want to take his time disciplining the kids, playing baseball with them, whatever it is that he doesn't want to do. He's too busy. His lion in the road is, honey, I've got to support the family. So that's the sluggard. All that's a way of saying to you guys, young especially, it's a way of saying, Proverbs is the book for you. You really need to go there. It'll tell you which trajectory you're on. Now, time is marching on, so I want to talk now to older men. Been leaning on the young guys for a bit. Let's talk to some of the older guys. In the book of Proverbs, the expression, my son... By my count, could be more or less, my count was 23 times. My son. 
I would suggest to you that every one of those isn't necessarily biological. Some, I think, are. Father talking to sons. But there is in the community of the wise a sense in which there are sort of spiritual fathers. And they're speaking to the younger generation as my son. And I think you'll see that, for example, uh, in, in the book of Proverbs repeatedly. Interestingly, Paul calls Timothy his son. Peter calls John Mark his son. And now you're talking about a different relationship. By the way, back at Believer's Chapel years ago, one elder, I don't know why he got hung up on this, but he, he took this term, my son, and, and, he, and he concluded that Timothy was actually Paul's son. And I remember his wife saying, oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> Even she could see that it didn't make any sense. Uh, but, but I think that in the, in the spiritual community, there is this father-son dynamic that goes on. And I was thinking particularly of Mark chapter 10. Take a look with me. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake. But that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecution and in the world to come eternal life. When Jeanette and I left Washington State, 1967, middle of the Six-Day War, came to Dallas, we basically didn't know anybody. Pretty lonely for a few days, not many. And then what we discovered is there were brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, that we accumulated grandmothers too. It's not in the text, but it happened for us. Grandmothers come along. So I decided to turn that around in my life. My experience was to have those people when I was young and didn't have any. My determination at this point in my life is to be one. You ever thought about that? If if God is going to provide brothers and sisters and mothers, why why not be one? Why not actually look out as a shepherd would and say... I think that person, I think that person needs somebody to come alongside. When we uh, first went to Believer's Chapel, we went there because we met somebody at the seminary who went to Believer's Chapel. We'd never heard of it, never been there. We went several weeks, nobody said anything to us. We decided we were going to try another church. And we couldn't find the directions for that church. So we said, all right, we'll go to Believer's Chapel one more time. We were literally in the parking lot getting in our car when a couple, Gardner and Estelle Michael, if anybody knows them, Gardner and Estelle came over and said, would you go to lunch with us? Gardner and Estelle became sister and brother. Gardner was working overtime and attending seminary full-time that year. We uh, spent many times at their dinner table when Jeanette was having... Uh, our uh, our second daughter, uh, Beth, was just this high, and and we had to have somewhere to leave her when we went to the hospital, and so we called Gardner to tell. <laughs> they came. Beth walked off. She didn't even turn around and say goodbye. <laughs> just you know, so long. <laughs> no big deal. And that happened with another child down the road. When uh, when things got lean. We got a phone call from a meat shop, and they said, your order is ready to pick up. I said, oh, man, I'm, I'm sorry. There must be a mistake. We didn't, we didn't order any meat. I said, you don't understand. It's paid for. You just need to come get it. When, uh, when they thought that I needed a, a set of commentaries, they showed up. When I started preaching, I fooled with my glasses. So they bought me a set of contacts. There were a number of seminary students went to Believer's Chapel in those days. Gardner told his wife, I want you to buy a new dress for every seminary wife here. That's shepherding. That's shepherding. That had a huge 
huge impact on our lives. And it's the kind of thing that I think needs to be happening over and over again. Mothers and fathers. Most of the great men, I think, had people alongside them in their early years, often people who replaced them. Think about Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Paul and Timothy, whatever. One of the side benefits of ministering to people and meeting their needs, shepherding them even in in physical ways, is that that has fringe benefits you never anticipated. Almost every significant leader that had an impact in my life was somebody I chose to serve to start with. Worked on Stan Toussaint's car. Stan and Max had us over for steak, T-bone steak dinner, lemon meringue pie, baked potato. First year of seminary, best meal I ever ate. I didn't intend to get the steak, but I just served him because he needed his car fixed. Adam Robinson, same story. Bruce Walkie, babysat the kids. It was just a way. And that's the thing I think we have to be careful about is when you look at the theological big boys, you're saying, what can I do for Bruce Walkie? I don't know. That's your problem. But, you know, Stan Toussaint needed new points in his car. I know they don't even have those anymore. But, but it was the way I could help. For those who are young and strong, uh, you'll recognize that some people are old and not so strong. That may mean you can do something in your strength they can't do in theirs. Serve people with what you have. Serve out of your strength to minister to other people in their weakness. And, Ephesians 4, get other people to help you. That's shepherding. Shepherding flock. All right. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for the shepherds in our lives, uh, our parents, very likely, other people in our church who have impacted us. We pray that we may learn from them and that you would use us to be shepherds using whatever a power or authority or strength that we have to minister to the weakness of others. We ask that we would do that in your strength and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.